Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 562. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Haven't you someone just got stuck halfway down, man? Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. It's lovely to have you here. We have got a special show today. Two things in it that make it so special. We have Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, our aims. And this story we are about to play is, and listen, we don't often do this, so I'm chuffed a bit. This is a two-part story this week and next week. Yes, we have got Steve Pantaz's part one of Switch. How about that? And then next week we'll play that. And Jeremy just says, Tony, we've got this huge story. And just, it's got to be good. Where, you know what I mean? We don't kind of want to take up two shows on an author if we, you know, if we don't, we like, like, you know, emphasize new writers and great stories. But like I say, this come along for Jeremy. And just, yeah, got to have it, got to have it. And it was, you know, the it was originally published in Writers of the Future as well. So, looking good. So, the we have got a show, and a show next week as well, you know what I mean, which will be fantastic, and hopefully the week after. So, we will jump straight in to part one of The Switch. And I'll give you a little heads up about Steve. Steve Pentazis is the award-winning author of fantasy and science fiction. He won the prestigious Writers of the Future Award in 2015. No, he won it. There you go. Yes. And has gone on to publish a number of short stories in leading science fiction and fantasy anthologies and magazines, including Nature and Galaxy's Edge. When not writing a rare occasion, Steve creates extraordinary cuisines, exercises with vigour and shares marvellous adventures with the love of his life. Originally from the Big Apple, he now calls Southern California his home. This story is narrated by, man, it gets me excited, Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins was born in California and grew up in and around the western US. He currently resides in the Highlands Ranch Sioux where he works as a voice artist primarily focused on audiobooks. He is probably best known for being the voice of the Glenn and Tyler series of audiobooks written by J.B. Sanders. You can hire Brian to narrate your next audiobook at thevoicesinmyhead.com. So, 
the Starship Sova is very proud to present Switch Written by Steve Pentazis Read for you by Brian Rollins The teenager is sprawled by pump number five, multiple gunshot wounds to the chest, the word deceased hovering over his body through the projection in my retinal overlay. We're in the middle of a crime scene at a gas station in Jackson Heights, Queens, just after sunset, where the decedent expired during a shootout with police. One officer was hit in the face, pronounced dead on sight. The other two in the neck by return fire, now at a nearby hospital. I pray they make it. The June humidity makes me want to tear off my clothes. Instead, I let my blazer bunch up around the elbows as I squat by the body. We have the station taped off and the street blocked on either end with a couple of cruisers. Lieutenant Briggs is on his way and at some point will talk to the media. There's a crowd of hungry spectators beyond the barricade, along with several news vans. I'm not going anywhere for the next few hours. My partner, Detective Ed Mullins, holds up an evidence bag. He's sweating worse than me. Three casings, nine mil. Where are the rest? That's it. What, he got lucky or something? Mullins shoves a stick of chewing gum in his mouth. That's what I'm saying. I checked the mag on his Glock. You can count the bullets yourself if you want. I peer at the teenager with fresh eyes while Mullins chomps his gum. The suspect is a good-looking kid, Puerto Rican with an athletic build, ocean wave-style trendy haircut and gelled sideburns. He's wearing a plain, bloodied white t-shirt and expensive jeans and sneakers. Doesn't fit the profile of a sharpshooter. How many shells from our side? Eleven. Mullins pops a bubble. Aremi says this one took four in the chest. He must have been on something, because he didn't drop until after our guys went down. I didn't take the kid for a user, but then again, you can't assume anything these days. We'd ID'd him as Kurt Rodriguez, 17, address from the nice part of Forest Hills. His head cocked to the left, I part the hair above his ear, exposing the port of his temporal lobe implant. There's a designer enamel grommet clamped on, Chinese characters around the ivory-colored rim. Kids love to mod their TLI ports with all kinds of stuff. This is pretty conservative, considering what I've seen. Twelve feet away is a splotch of blood soaked into the grime from where Officer Nolan Yee bled out, numbered markers left in place of his body. Part of me wants to plant the heel of my shoe over Rodriguez's skull and cave it in. Yee and my younger brother Tommy graduated from the academy together. I remember Yee and his girlfriend coming over to the house at our big Super Bowl party where we'd shared beers while barbecuing out in the cold. Yi was a smart kid, with aspirations of making detective. His girlfriend was pretty, and I could tell he was crazy about her, from the way he kept his hands on the small of her back to the goofy I'm-in-love smile tattooed on his face. Such a freaking shame. He wasn't a close friend of Tommy's, but they were rookies together, paying their dues on parole. I can't imagine how Tommy will take the news, but it pisses me off just thinking about it. Rodriguez won't even get a chance to stand trial for what he's done. Son of a bitch. The stench of gasoline is heavy. Mullen steps closer, blocking the bright gas station canopy lighting with his 200-pound frame. 
belt swooping below his enlarged gut as if holding back a storm. He points at the body. I'm still picking up a TLI broadcast. Me too. Should have quit with brain death, but something must still be firing. Every few seconds, I get a discovery ping from Rodriguez's temporal lobe implant, which flashes red in my overlay. Usually you set your TLI on discovery mode if you want another device to find you over the mind net. Some neural activity must have triggered the response, but I'm no doctor, so I don't bother dissecting it. Our blood spatter analysis corroborates the stories from a couple of eyewitnesses that gave their take on what went down at the gas station, including the attendant. Rodriguez had walked over to Yi, who was buying a bottle of water at the kiosk, and shot him point-blank in the face, without provocation. According to dispatch, two officers in a squad car heard the gunshot from down the block and zipped over in their cruiser. They engaged the suspect and squeezed off a number of shots before Rodriguez fired back, just twice, taking down each officer from about 50 feet away after being critically wounded. The crazy part is that the suspect made no attempt to run or hide. Mullins shares my sentiment. He just stood there and picked them off. I'm telling you, he was on something. I searched the kid's pockets, turning them inside out. House keys, cash card, mini flashlight, and a packet of breath-freshening strips. Mullins squats next to me. Nada, huh? I want to agree, but I pop open the plastic dispenser and hold it up to my nose. It smells of cinnamon and cloves and something else I can't quite place, but I'm positive what we're dealing with without needing to wait for results from a lab. I lick my lips, imagining how it would taste, dissolving the wafer-thin strip until only the exotic oils remain on my tongue. Mullins calls my name, but I don't respond until he says it a second time. Parker! I snap the dispenser closed. Yeah, just thinking. Well, think out loud. I hold up the blue plastic case. It's half the size of my thumb. Homegrown. You sure? Smell. He does, but his face clouds over like he's trying to wrestle with the fact it's not something you buy at a 7-Eleven. He wrinkles his nose. What kind of product do you think? Switch. He nods slowly, getting it. Told you he was on something. They usually come in pasty dots printed on paper ribbon or in clear tabs. I haven't seen this form before. But I have. Sublingual delivery is by far the best way to get it into your bloodstream. Dots, tabs, strips, doesn't matter. Stick one under your tongue and say goodbye to foggy thoughts. It's big with the underage crowd because they love to surf the mine net in long marathon sessions. Rat race junkies enjoy the extra boost when they have to pull 80-hour work weeks. Athletes have been accused of taking it, but there is no mandatory testing yet in the sports community. Same with military and law enforcement. The best way to describe the experience is to imagine a massive caffeine high. You get that awesome rush, that laser focus, that burst of euphoria, like who cares if it's Monday morning at the office with a ton of shit to do. Nothing matters at the moment because your brain has turned off all your concerns, all the pain, all the problems of the day. Everything. What you're left with is your subconscious mind taking over and you just go with it. Switch does that. It gives you a mental edge over those around you. You think better. You work better. You fight better. You are better. Unfortunately for the enthusiast, 
it's illegal. And you don't just get a misdemeanor for possession these days. Well, it explains a few things. Mullins waves a hand over the scene. But it doesn't explain why he snapped and went on a killing spree. Mullins is wrong, but I don't say it. He's never had a taste, so his only experience is what he learned during morning briefings and on the net. This is cutting-edge, psychotropic-grade product, and the scientific community is just starting to discover its true potential. In my mind, this stuff is a game-changer. I hold the dispenser between gloved fingers with newfound respect, almost reverence. So small, yet a powerhouse of mind manipulation. I place it in an evidence bag and resign it over to Mullins. See if your guy can get us an expedite on this. I want to know how much is in our sus system. Mullins holds the bag up to the light. I'll see what I can do. I come to my feet and the blood returns to my cramped legs. We need to finish processing the crime scene. All right, chief, let's get a move on. It's almost midnight by the time I crawl into bed. I'm so exhausted I can't sleep. We made a statement to the press, buttoned up the scene, and tried to interview the murder suspect's mother, who was in pieces over her son's death. Then I had to spend almost 30 minutes on a call with Tommy, trying to calm him down. The whole evening was a mess. My wife Susie's eyes flutter open when I turn on the lamp. She looks over at the clock radio on her nightstand and frowns. So late. Everything okay? It's just work. I'll tell you about it in the morning, sweetie. Go to sleep. She yawns. Caitlin asked about you. I wish you would have called. I know. Our four-year-old loves to hear my voice at least once before she goes to bed, even if I'm on the job. It's not like me to miss the opportunity. If I had even the briefest moment alone, I give my wife a cursory kiss on the cheek and let her roll onto her stomach, covers pulled up to her neck. She tells me in a drowsy voice that she loves me. I love you too, babe. Thirty seconds later, she's asleep. I watch the soft rise and fall of her back and the dark brown tumble of hair lying across her shoulder blades. I've been married twelve years and I still see the same twenty-one-year-old, that fragile girl who defied her parents to marry a cop. Caitlin is the spitting image of her mother. She's incredibly smart and uses the net better than anyone I know. She was born into the MindNet generation. I was 16 when it became commercially available, touted as the Internet for the Mind, and 29 when I got my temporal lobe implant. I used to think the Internet was the end-all, be-all as a kid. Then the MindNet came along, and all of a sudden we were using wearable prosthetics that could connect our brains to banks, retailers, and social networks. TLIs followed, replacing cell phone calls, emails, and texts with thought-enabled communications. My parents would laugh, recalling a time when a network computer was a marvel. Now it's the brain. And little Caitlin will think of the MindNet as I did of its predecessor, and how she never knew a time before it existed. I shut off the lamp, but I still can't sleep. I'm smelling cinnamon and cloves and... Cardamom. That's the spice I couldn't think of. I connect to the net through my TLI and quickly pull up a wiki on Switch. It appears in my retinal overlay as a semi-transparent page against the room's darkened background. There's a complete on-screen breakdown of the history of Switch. 
It started as an accidental offshoot of a popular antidepressant found to increase memory retention and response time in rodents. The pharmaceutical name is duoxetane, but it was never approved for human trials. Still, somebody came up with the brilliant idea to package it into digestible form and put it on the street. The cardamom masks the bitter taste of the active ingredient. Thoroughly awake, I log into the precinct portal and pull up the case file for today's homicide. A thumbnail of each page is tiled across the bottom of my overlay. I select the first one and start at the beginning. Some of the information on the expired suspect has been updated, but it will be at least tomorrow when the lab work comes back. I remember Alicia Rodriguez crying her eyes out, wondering how her son could have shot anyone. There were similar reactions from the father and younger sister who swore Kurt Rodriguez, track and field star of Forest Hills High School, was incapable of perpetrating the murder of one police officer, let alone three. Wait until they find out how much switch was in his system. I get out of bed and peek in on Caitlin. She's asleep, thumb in her mouth, with the covers bunched around her feet. Same long, dark hair as her mother. She's got my wide-swept ears, though. I feel bad about missing our night-night chat. I pull her blanket over her shoulders and tell her how much Daddy loves her. She snoozes on. I wish I could sleep like that. I go down to the basement, my man cave. I'll never get the smell of cigars out of the carpet, but it's comforting to me. And this is where I do my best thinking. There's a workbench by the water heater with an old, rusted vice mounted to the side and a bunch of small tools I use for my hobby work. I rest my palm on the vice for a moment. It was my father's. He was a tool and dye worker and spent most of his career at a ball-bearing manufacturing plant in Philly. He always wanted me to find an honest job and stick to it, and all I wanted to do was to make my old man proud. I take a deep breath and ease open the plastic organizer that holds the assortment of nails, screws, washers, and bolts. There's a box of matches underneath a dozen ten-penny nails. It doesn't have any matches in it. I turn on the bench light and open the box. Like precious bars of gold bullion, the wafer-thin strips glint in the light. I'm greeted by a fresh burst of apple and a hint of cardamom. There are only three strips left and a slight panic settles in. I usually do a strip before breakfast, but on a night like tonight, especially when my conscience is weighed down, I'm tempted to do a second. That would leave me a day to restock. Susie doesn't know about my secret habit. I could never tell her. A pang of guilt floods my innards. I imagine what my father would have thought of my stealthy enterprise, what I would say to him, that I started because of the long hours at work, that it helped me cope with the Nolan geese of the world, that I kept going to deaden my nerves any time I came upon a teenage tragedy like Rodriguez's, my father wouldn't buy any of it. I reach over and give the vice a good pat. Thank goodness the old man's not around to witness this. He had that sixth sense, the kind that kicked in any time I did something wrong, no matter how good I thought I was at hiding it. Tommy, on the other hand, seemed to get away with everything. I dislodge a paper-thin sheet from the matchbox. It adheres to the moisture on my fingertip. I hold the see-through amber strip up to the light, marveling at how such a thing could have driven Rodriguez to murder. 
I can understand the elevated aggression with higher and more prolonged dosage, but the same could be said of alcohol. Was the switch enough to make a star athlete snap? I have a lot of questions percolating through my head. At the top of the list is finding out what drove Rodriguez to murder. I place the strip on my tongue. It dissolves in seconds. Immediately, my head is clear. My concentration restored. I can feel the heat from the light, the faint scent of glue from the applicator across the room, the electrical pulse of my TLI firing packets of data out into mind space. I am not the man I was a minute ago. I am not like my partner, whose mind is dulled by everyday living, nor like the honest working man I aspire to be. I am something else entirely, free, evolved, a new category of species. My unamplified self would condemn my actions, but in my enhanced state, I am exactly who I need to be. We're in our cubicle farm at the precinct, a little after eight in the morning. Mullins distracts me with his nasty habit of biting his nails. Forty-three, divorced, with five kids from two different marriages and alimony payments to both wives, he's a perpetual ball of nervous energy. I thank my stars Susie and I have stuck through thick and thin and waited until I made detective before we had Caitlin. Mullins was fresh out of the academy when he had his first kid. He looks like an old man with deep rings under the eyes on his puffy face. I feel sorry for him, but not sorry as I do for his children. My parents divorced when I was seven, so I know about shitty deals. The second dose from last night kept me going until dawn, even though I started out the morning feeling like a zombie. I had two cups of coffee on top of my usual strip, so I'm a little more wired than usual. I don't like to dose in the evenings for exactly this reason, but I needed the extra perk to keep my mind from racing in random directions which would have kept me up anyway. With my cleared thoughts, I was able to contend with the culpability of using, of being a deceiver who classified Rodriguez as a criminal when I wasn't much better. But, then again, I hadn't shot Yi in the head. Mullins stops gnawing long enough to speak. I don't get it. He was being interviewed by scouts from two top ten universities with the chance at a sports scholarship. He had his whole life ahead of him. What's wrong with this generation? I've asked myself the same question a million times. As expected, the lab test came back positive for duoxetane. We'll have to wait four weeks for the full toxicology report, but at least we have a preliminary finding that supports my suspicions. Rodriguez had 22 milligrams of the drug in his system, a lethal quantity. There were also markers indicated cumulative dosing. It means he was an experienced user and that he knew what he was doing when he dosed up. Now I'm really irked. And the more I think about it, the more I want to know where he purchased his product. There aren't too many dealers who supply Switch in the strip form. Could have been my guy? I give it a few seconds of serious consideration before I dismiss it as coincidence. It could have been anyone, a close friend, a family member, or someone at school. Mullins pops open a can of soda and slurps loudly. I've been doing a bunch of medical research on Switch. He pauses to belch. It doesn't just amp you up. It interacts with the same neuroreceptors that our TLIs use. I've been thinking about how our suspect took just three shots and hit every target. 
He struck each of our guys above the neckline. You know what kind of skill you need for that in a firefight? How about the fact he didn't hit them in the Kevlar like most suspects would? See? This shit is different. He crosses his arms, smug, as if he's telling me something I haven't already figured out. I flick his can with a finger. I guess you ruled out paramilitary training, or that he might have been an experienced marksman with a handgun? Mullins knots his forehead, not getting my joke. He uses a nail clipping to floss his teeth. It bugs me to no end. Do you have to do that? He frowns, then wipes his saliva on his sleeve and shrugs. All I'm saying is that this stuff is potent. I grab my jacket. Mullins looks up. Where are we going? To get answers. Look, I don't know where he got it. I already gave my statement. You'd think I would have let him take that crap under my roof? Mr. Rodriguez is angry. He's clutching a white handkerchief embroidered with his initials in his left hand while seated on a bourbon-tinted leather armchair. We're at the Rodriguez's three-bedroom co-op in Forest Hills. It's upper middle class like the rest of the neighborhood. Mr. Rodriguez works for Delta Technologies in Manhattan, a maker of smart furniture. Supposedly, the leather couch I'm sitting on can sense when my back is aching and offer oscillating stimulation to pamper me. It doesn't feel any different than the other overpriced couches I've sat on. I read over the handwritten notes on my yellow pad. We've already spoken to the deceased mother, sister, track coach, last girlfriend, next-door neighbor, and a former co-worker from where the young Rodriguez caddied at a golf course last year. His father is the last stop on a day of zero leads, and I'm hungry. It's half past four, and the last thing I ate was a bagel with cream cheese first thing this morning. Mullins is sitting next to me, probably ravenous from the way he's massaging his belly. We're no closer to getting any answers than before we left the station. The only thing of interest came from the coach who said Kurt Rodriguez had smashed the state record in the 100-meter dash about a month back. I give Mr. Rodriguez a few seconds to settle down before I ask the next question. What about his behavior? You must have noticed something different. Mr. Rodriguez's tone is less confrontational. Not really. Nothing at all? He scratches behind the ear. I examine the body language, but it doesn't look like he's covering up for his son. I guess the only thing that jumps out at me is that he was studying really hard before the summer break. Mr. Rodriguez says, he stayed in his room a lot. Is that unusual? Kurt used to hang out with his buddies after track practice every day. His sister said he stopped doing it altogether and complained he was in his room all the time playing loud music. I'd always come home late from work, so I didn't notice the change, and I didn't think a lot about it. I tap my pen against the scribbles on my notepad, I'm surprised the sister didn't say anything to us about her brother's newfound seclusion. How do you know he was studying when he was in his room? Mr. Rodriguez looks at me oddly with his tired, sunken eyes, either surprised or offended by my question. His grades were the best I've ever seen. His GPA was always in the high twos, low threes. He got 4.0 his last marking period. He even scored a perfect hundred on his math regents exam. He'd never gotten more than a C in math. So yeah, 
I assumed he was studying in his room. I want to write something down, but the information is unremarkable. What about changes in mood? Was he happy, mad, irritated, depressed? Mr. Rodriguez glances off to the side. Any hostility he felt toward me is replaced by sadness. He presses his fingertips into the hollows of his eyes while holding up his other hand. I give him a moment. When he opens them, tears roll down his face and he quickly wipes them away. Mr. Rodriguez, I'm sorry, but we need to ask these questions. He nods rapidly. It's just that. He clears his throat. I mean, there are all these calls I have to make. I have to arrange the, you know, the funeral and... His voice catches. He rubs the stitched initials on his handkerchief with his thumb and then notices me looking at it. Kurt gave this to me a week ago for Father's Day. He had it personalized, see? He turns it over, and the stitching reads, To the best father in the world, love Kurt. The anger returns in his voice. You think you would have done that if he was messed up on that stuff? We sit for a moment. I give Mr. Rodriguez the space to collect himself. Mullins is impatient, tapping his foot annoyingly. I shoot him a quit-it look, and he stops. I resume my questioning. Mr. Rodriguez, do you know what switch does to the central nervous system? It rewires it. It affects judgment, restraint, motor skills, focus, and attention. If you're doing bad in math, it fixes it. If you think you're weak, it changes that. If you're feeling aggressive, it amplifies the sensation. It does a lot with just a little. And when the high is off, the craving hits you. Because feeling normal just isn't good enough. I hit a high note with that last part, my sermon fueled by confession. Mullins looks at me strangely, but I ignore him and continue. Mr. Rodriguez, it's not that we don't want to hear what you're saying. No one wants to think their child uses. But do you think nothing was wrong when he shot those police officers? I'm surprised at my own flare of anger. Mr. Rodriguez brandishes the handkerchief. He wasn't on it when he gave me this. I know my son. He must have taken it for the first time yesterday, or someone drugged him. Why aren't you looking into that? Kurt Rodriguez was an addict, pure and simple. His father can't recognize the signs. We found quite a bit in his bloodstream. There were indications he dosed regularly. No one drugged him. Mr. Rodriguez perks up. We're not allowed to share lab specifics during an investigation, especially before the official report comes out, so I leave it at that. I try to get back to obtaining a meaningful answer. What about new associates? Did your son meet any new people, either outside of school or over the mine net? Not that I was aware of. What about his feelings toward authority? Any changes in his views on religion or politics or the government? Mr. Rodriguez throws up his hands. Look, I already told you I don't know anything. I hardly saw him as it was, and now... He swallows. He's on the verge of crying. His voice comes out chafed. And now, I won't get to see him again. I sigh inwardly. We're spinning our wheels. I thank Mr. Rodriguez for his time. He barely acknowledges me. We leave him in his armchair, handkerchief clenched in his hand, tears of defeat streaking down his face. 
Back at the precinct, we go through the items seized from Kurt's bedroom. The little shit had to have been OCD because everything was arranged and aligned perfectly on his desk and drawers, his socks, underwear, and t-shirts folded and pressed, his other clothes hanging in the closet, hangers spaced evenly apart. I recognize the pattern. Switch makes you do things like that. You get all this energy, all this creativity, and you have to use it or you get antsy. Susie would always ask me how much coffee I drank when I'd redo our cupboards, making sure every label on every can or box faced forward, all stacked and sorted neatly and dust-free, or when I'd work on the lawn for hours, snipping the edges with a scissor on my hands and knees. Rodriguez's room was a total disaster by the time our team was done tearing it apart. The only computerized device they found was his digipad, loaded up with meaningless, hand-drawn sketches and the notes he took during his junior year classes. The problem these days is that anything of merit is on the net, and since people use their TLIs instead of old tech computers for just about everything, you have to go to the cloud if you want anything. Mullins and I review the panoramic photos taken of the kids' room, looking for additional clues. The one facet of interest is on the north wall where Rodriguez had meticulously pasted a few hundred blank sticky notes in straight rows and columns, each sticky equally spaced apart. Mullins shakes his head. You mean to tell me his father didn't notice this? Thinking about the pattern gives me an idea. I rub my hands together. You know what we need to do, right? What, get something to eat? No, we need to tap into his last memories. Mullins tenses his eyebrows, forehead creasing in puzzlement. It takes him a few seconds to get what I'm suggesting. Then he smiles big. I'll get us the warrant. It's called a cerebral trace, and it requires an okay from a judge. I'm not a big fan of digging into a person's private memories, even when they're dead. But it's helped us in the past, like when we scan the last memories of a murdered rape victim a few months back to find a serial killer before he struck again. I honestly think we saved lives because we weren't anywhere near catching the bastard. Privacy advocates argued the techniques violates Fourth Amendment rights, and in a way I see their point. With a pending case at the Supreme Court, we'll see what happens. Until then, we keep doing our job. Mullins and I race over to the office of the chief medical examiner in Manhattan, warrant already forwarded. We meet with Dr. Sanjay Parak, a neuropathologist certified in cerebral traces. Time is of the essence, considering the decomposition of the brain after death, so I'm happy to see Parak already at work in the autopsy room. Rodriguez's blanched form is lying upright on the metal table, the body covered with a sheet below the collarbone a probe jutting from his skull where I imagine Parrick drilled into it only moments ago. It's a good thing, too, because I get a little queasy seeing drills and bone saws in action. Plus, I hate the odor. Mullins always jokes that it smells like corn chips. Parrick plugs the other end of the electrode into a beige cylinder with a monitor affixed to a mobile cart. Almost there, he says as he continues to set things up. Mullins chomps noisily on his gum. Hey, I got a question about the autopsy report. He attempts a bubble, but the gum flops over his lower lip. He shoves it back in his mouth. You mentioned something about his right shoulder tattoo being animated? I thought those things stopped post-mortem. 
I thought those things stopped post-mortem. I'd noticed the oddity, too, but hadn't thought much about it. Rodriguez had a black and white tattoo of a Bengal tiger with bared teeth that transformed into Chinese characters when animated. Nothing fancy or useful, in my opinion. Dr. Parrick checks the monitor while adjusting the cranial probe. The screen is grainy, a dark sea of shimmering speckles. It's rare, but not unheard of. Skin cells can survive for days. Animorphs, animated tattoos, function as long as the cells sustain them. So it'll work now? Mullins asked. Parrick moves over to Rodriguez's left side. Take a look. He presses a gloved finger firmly into the stiff muscle of the shoulder. The Bengal tiger dissolves, changing into a pair of Chinese characters, and then back to the original tiger. See? An amorphic transformation. Pretty cool, actually. Mullins lifts his eyebrow. Huh. What do you know? Please stand back. Parrick motions for us not to make contact with the cadaver. I maintain a safe distance. The doctor taps an icon on the side of the monitor, and Rodriguez's body convulses for a split second. The speckled screen dissolves into a blob of gray and black gradients, expanding and contracting like heated wax in a lava lamp. Parrick rotates his finger over a shaded dial on the sidebar menu, and the screen's contrast brightens. He adjusts several more controls, and the blur sharpens into an image that looks exactly like the canopy lights at the gas station. It's the last thing he saw, Parrick explains. We call it residual retinal burn. Let's see if we can get anything else. He taps the screen. The body shudders again. We see fractured images, glimpses of a school locker, a crowd of students in a hallway, a few flashes of different parts of the Rodriguez household. Boring scenes, although I'm quite impressed that we're actually seeing what Rodriguez saw when he was alive. I've been through the process before, but it amazes me every time. The on-screen image changes. We're looking at what I imagine to be a MindNet page showing an online store, followed by a chat session with a succession of static images representing a conversation. I'm thinking we're going nowhere until I spot the familiar packet of strips. I assume our suspect is holding the dispenser when it turns out to be someone else. The dispenser gets handed off to Rodriguez but I glimpse a Y-shaped scar on the knuckle of the tanned individual before it disappears from you. Wait, go back. I jab my finger at the monitor. Parrick freezes the frame. He tries to revive the last scene, but now we're looking at a bowl of cereal and Rodriguez's brown fingers moving a spoon around in circles, not bothering to eat. Sorry, I can't go back. Don't worry, it'll be on the recording. The scene continues with Rodriguez still not eating. Something must be bothering him. Any idea how far back this is? Probably the morning of the accident, or the day before, Parrick says. Not earlier? I've never seen any memories older than 72 hours. This is pure visual cortex feedback. It's always short term. Rodriguez slams the spoon down on the table, splashing milk everywhere. There's no sound with these memories, just raw imagery. Someday, I hope the technology improves so we can get audio. Rodriguez removes his dispenser from his pocket and empties out all the strips. He stuffs the entire wad into his mouth. There had to be at least ten strips in the bundle. Mullins and Parrick seem unfazed. Am I the only one who noticed? The better part of a minute goes by with Rodriguez sitting at the table. 
He takes the spoon and bowl and neatly removes them from the table, wiping up the spill with his napkin. Whatever agitation was coursing through him seems to be gone. We watch as he calmly leaves the table and goes up to his room and locks the door. It's bizarre as he walks in a circle, round and round. He finally stops and lifts up his mattress. He grabs a handgun resting on the box spring. Mullins snorts out a laugh. Ha! There's our murder weapon! I ignore Mullins' outburst and continue to watch as Rodriguez takes his firearm over to the desk. He removes the magazine and makes sure the chamber is empty. He then disassembles the rest of the gun. Slide, recoil, spring assembly, barrel, pistol, and base. Each piece is carefully placed on the desk. It's as if Rodriguez is creating an exploded diagram from an engineering schematic. He retrieves a cleaning kit from a drawer and proceeds to clean the components with obsessive detail. I recognize the precision in his movements, the need to clean. He's amped, a fully charged human turned into a purpose-driven machine. From there, Rodriguez picks up the pace. He does at least a hundred push-ups on the carpet of his bedroom, runs up and down the stairs two at a time, assembles and disassembles his gun faster than anyone I've seen. The tasks are repetitive, the mind trapped in a continuum of exacting execution. The next scene shows Rodriguez running on the sidewalk. He glances at his body once. It confirms he's wearing the clothes we found him in, establishing a time frame. He hops a chest-high chain-link fence like it's nothing, dodges cars in a frantic burst across a busy intersection. He then runs past three young males in front of an apartment building. They're perhaps a little older than him. I catch a sneak peek of their stereographic tattoos, gang glyphs visible only through a retinal overlay. Rodriguez stops and turns around with near inhuman dexterity. The largest of the three is goading him, making obscene, taunting gestures. The other two laugh, but in a blink, Rodriguez is on them. He smashes the first on the side of the head with his fist, the second in the Adam's apple, the third in the side of the neck. It's something I picture a Navy SEAL doing to enemy combatants. They're down in an instant, squirming. I'm getting an adrenaline high watching the action. I want to deny it, but I can't help but revel in Rodriguez's ass-kicking abilities. I want to mimic his superpowers, to become invincible like him. The thrill ends the second I recognize the gas station. Rodriguez is running at full steam. Without missing a step, he pulls the Glock from his belt. A second later, the kiosk comes into sight. Officer Yi is holding a bottle of water, ready to pay the cashier behind the glass. He looks over to Rodriguez, a mystified expression. Rodriguez slows to a walk. My heart is beating crazy in my chest. I know this feeling, this anticipation. The animal wants the prey to engage him. Yi holds off a moment longer as if trying to rationalize what he's seeing. He then goes for his duty weapon. Rodriguez blasts Yi in the face. The three of us gasp, Mullins adding in a, Holy shit! I want to turn away, but I can't. I'm captivated by Rodriguez's inhuman display of savagery. Rodriguez takes a long moment to stare at his reflection in the kiosk glass. I feel like I'm looking at myself. Carriage having to suck in more oxygen, a predator ready to maul his next victim. I clutch my chest. My heart is thumping like it's going to explode. Mullins looks my way. Parker, you all right? I have to get out of this room. I need air. 
I'm becoming Rodriguez, mirroring his animalistic breathing, a hair trigger from snapping at anything that touches me or comes too close. I think Mullen senses it too, because he leans away. We let the rest of the scene play out. The arrival of the police cruiser, the shootout with the other two officers, the suspect's violent death. It ends with the first image we saw of the canopy lighting, then speckled blackness. We're all quiet, as if waiting for the end credits to the horror movie we just saw. Mullins is the first to say anything. He turns to Perrick. You get all that? Everything, my God! Perrick is obviously shaken. My God is right! Mullins wipes the sheen of perspiration from his forehead. I swear, if that SOB weren't already dead... Mullins knots a fist, then relaxes his grip. He looks my way. He raises his hand, like he wants to place it on my shoulder, but drops it quickly. You okay, partner? Fine, I say. But I'm anything but fine. This is crazy, you know it? Mullins has his jowls pushed up on his left hand, fat folds in his face bunched up like a sharp haze. He's on his third can of energy water, the other two empty and crushed into pucks. We've been going over Rodriguez's recording for almost four hours. Everyone on the floor has gone home for the evening, leaving the rest of the cubicle farm dark and quiet, except for us. Mullins is playing with his bowl of microwave popcorn, circulating the kernels endlessly, his nervous energy eating away at my resolve. He points a greasy finger at the screen. I mean, who gets this kind of front row seat to a murderous craziness, huh? I replay the scene, showing the dispenser handoff between what I imagine is the drug dealer and Rodriguez. We've already run the still image against our biometrics database, searching through the collection of tattoos, scars, and birthmarks. Fifteen potential matches were returned, not a single one quite like the knuckle scar in the still. The only thing we were able to determine were generic traits, male, Late 30s to mid 40s, approximately 5'9 in height, medium build, possibly Hispanic. Mullins downs the last of his water and burps. Hey, I gotta go. Sandy is driving me crazy. She keeps pinging me to pick up Kevin. I thought this was her week to watch him. It was. Mullins heaves himself out of his chair and grabs his blazer. He sighs heavily, the weight of life showing in his weary eyes. I don't envy his situation. Both his exes can be a pain in the ass. You'll be fine, I say. Just think, you can knock back a couple after Kevin goes to bed. He jiggles his big belly with a smile. Yeah, that's what I need. I shove him playfully. Go on, get out of here. He tosses a goodbye hand wave and disappears, leaving me with the video of our dead suspect. My smile fades when I see the frozen image of the dispenser in the dealer's hand. It not only reminds me that we're no closer to figuring out who's moving the product on the street, but that I'll be out of my own supply tomorrow evening. I begrudgingly turn off the monitor, sinking into a cesspool of disgust, most of it aimed at myself. What would happen if I were to just go on empty? It's not like I'm addicted to the stuff. I catch myself licking my lips again. I bang the desk, angry. I need to fix this. And the only way to see how is to do exactly what I'm not supposed to do. And there you go. Oh, come back next week for part two of Switch. 
Wow, man. Steve, thank you so much. And Brian, just putting just putting that lyrical blend in there. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It has been an honour. Come back next week. Oh, now then. Now then. The love of my internet fiction life there. Oh, Amy. Amy H. Sturgis. And Amy's got something... What can I say? Mind-blowing, I think, for you. You know what I mean? She's doing... She's giving you, letting us have a listen to a keynote speech. And it's just, you know what I mean? <laughs> you can tell, this is, Amy was asked to do this kind of big keynote speech. And it's the last thing, I've mentioned this before, on God's green earth that I'd want to do. Do you know what I mean? But the f- Amy's still got that burning desire, man. You can just tell, you know, even from like the, I haven't listened actually to all of it, but the opening kind of lines, that's what I'm going to do now. It's just the fire's there. She still gets excited by this shit. And I don't mean this shit in a derogative way. You know, this shit, we all, what we all love. You know what I mean? But Amy's just got this desire, this just craving to kind of share what she knows. You know, she is a teacher. And it's just like you sit back and... She's throwing in essays and everything, man. It's just like fantastic. Oh, Amy, I just love this, man. Thank you so much. So, Ames. Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. And I have something special that I would like to share with you today. On October 6th, 2018, there was a rather remarkable event that was held in Roanoke, Virginia, in the United States. Previously, this event drew something like 8,000 attendees and had been known as the Roanoke Potter Fest. But in the intervening year, a certain movie studio that produces a certain film series that takes place in a certain magical world got a little bit free with cease and desist letters, and so a lot of different events have changed their name, and this event was no exception. It became the Generic Magic Festival, but it lost none of its momentum or vision. Downtown Roanoke transformed itself. Historic old buildings became the centers of different kinds of presentations and performances on the theme of speculative literature and fantasy in particular. Shop fronts also changed, as did offerings from shops. The, for example, local tea and coffee houses created specially themed drinks to celebrate the festival. It was an amazing event, and I was deeply honored to be invited to give the keynote talk at this entire event, and of course, thrilled to accept. What I would like to do is share with you my talk. It definitely connects to genre history. There is quite a bit of crossover with science fiction. But ultimately, this talk is a plea for us to appreciate how the stories we tell ourselves and each other can cultivate hope and courage in trying times and can, in fact, inspire us to do better and On October 6th, I certainly thought we need to do better, and since then, in my own country, we've had additional mass shootings and the mailing of bombs and other things that convince me, in fact, this is even more relevant than it was a mere month ago. 
And so my keynote talk is entitled "Why We Need New Magic." And before it ends, I will recommend four different 2018 readings inspired by the cultures and histories and mythologies of peoples from four different continents. All of them books I have read and loved and greatly appreciated over this past year, and I hope that you'll indulge me and allow me to share my talk with you now. Why we need new magic? One of the questions I get asked regularly is who or where is the next J.K. Rowling? Now, some people mean this in a very surface level, shallow kind of way. They're asking. Who or where is the next literary superstar who will single-handedly become a franchise, a brand, an industry? But others mean something more, something deeper, and there is a yearning in the asking of the question. After all, Rowling couldn't have become an industry if she hadn't first been a storyteller, winning hearts and minds and imaginations with her story of the boy who lived. Unfortunately, we don't have time turners, so we can't go back and re-experience meeting Harry Potter for the first time. But we wonder how can we find something else that will do for us what Harry Potter did that very first time we encountered him. What is that exactly? What did Harry Potter accomplish for us? If we can understand this, then perhaps we can find it again. Perhaps we'll recognize it. When it is right there in front of us, the answer I propose lies not with Rowling, but with her predecessor, an Oxford don named J.R.R. Tolkien, the father of the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, and the Silmarillion, and a great deal more. So the first thing I want to do is answer my question: Why we need magic? Full stop. By sharing Tolkien's perspective on what fantasy does for us, and showing how the Harry Potter books, that seven-book series, accomplish it, and then I want to share why I think we need new magic—that our steps into Middle Earth, into the fantasy world of Rowling's witches and wizards, should be opening steps on a journey. If you will, and not the final steps we take. Now, I love Tolkien's Middle Earth, but I think one of the most important things he ever wrote was his 1947 essay on fairy stories. Spoiler here: he uses the term fairy stories to mean the genre we call fantasy, to avoid confusion, because he uses the term fantasy in a much more specific way, as we will soon see. But when I say fairy stories, think. Fantasy. Through his study, Tolkien was persuaded that good fairy stories shared common traits, globally and ahistorically. This is really important to note. He wasn't talking about England. He wasn't talking about Europe. He was talking about humanity across time. His writing is predicated on the idea that we share enough in common. That we can hear and be changed by others' stories, and that others' stories are worth seeking out. And Tolkien, he walked the walk, even though his goal for Middle Earth, for the works that he wrote about Middle Earth, was to provide 
a mythology for England? That seems like a pretty well-defined, insular, even narrow focus, right? But even though that was his goal, he knew his imagination would benefit if he looked outside of England. For example, he became a fan of the Finnish national epic, the Kalevala. He came to it not for some, like, smash-and-grab cultural appropriation, where he'd just dive in, grab a couple of names that he could plug into his own work as, you know, a clever reference, and then leave. He came to it with humility, as a student. And he even appreciated that there was distance between himself and the Kalevala because he was reading it in translation, and so he taught himself Finnish, so that he could read it in the original language, so he could understand it better. I point this out because this is extremely important to my argument later. In his study, then, of world fairy stories, he reached a conclusion about why they were and are important. Let's look at his analysis and see how well, first, the Harry Potter books fit his vision. And then we'll move on to new magic. Tolkien defined fairy stories with four criteria. Number one, they touch on or use fairy, the perilous realm, a sober magic of a particular mood and power. I see this in the Harry Potter series when Harry first sees his heart's desire in the Mirror of Erised, when you could hear whispers behind the black veil in the Department of Mysteries. In this world, the inhabitants remember the past atrocities of he who must not be named, the Dark Lord Voldemort, and alternately fear, deny, enable, and or resist his violent return. A perilous realm, indeed. Two, they take the magic seriously and do not satirize it, even if the larger work is satirical in tone. So when the Weasley twins in Harry Potter create tongue toffee or skiving snack boxes. That's funny, we can laugh, but the magic is not the butt of the joke. We never lose sight of the fact that magic can hurt, magic can kill in this universe. It can be literally unforgivable. Third, fairy stories involve human beings as characters, and at some level speak to one or more of humanity's primal desires, things that appear over and over again in stories from different peoples, different cultures at different times, such as the wish to communicate with other living things or to journey through space and time. Certainly, we see real human beings in Harry Potter. Harry Potter himself was raised in the Muggle world just like we are. In other words, this isn't like a beast fable. It has human beings as point-of-view characters. And the primal desires are clearly there. Harry can communicate with magical creatures. The time-turner and the pensive allow characters to traverse through time and space, etc. Lastly, and most importantly, Tolkien says that fairy stories offer to the reader four valuable gifts. Fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. And it's in his explanation of these four gifts that Tolkien's most energetic defense of the genre lies. What does he mean by the gift of fantasy? Fantasy, he says, is the seductive creation of an internally consistent secondary universe— 
that while being arrestingly strange and different from the real world, nevertheless compels belief in readers. He's well aware that people often talk about creating a make-believe world in a depreciative tone. They think it's irrational. And he says, no, this is not an irrational pastime. It's something only a reasonable creator can make, can do, because you have to understand the patterns and laws in our universe and then construct a comparably constant, consistent framework for a secondary world and maintain enough of a division between the two that the reader will know one from the other. To Tolkien, uh, writing as a Catholic, he thought of fantasy as revealing the author in her truest and most fundamental form, a child of God. In other words, God created and in God's image, we become creators too. But you don't have to subscribe to his religious beliefs to appreciate that he thinks this is a, an artistic and intellectual achievement to create something fantasy. Uh, he says fantasy, quote, is, I think, not a lower but a higher form of art, indeed the most nearly pure form, and so when achieved, the most potent, end quote. And I think we see that in the Harry Potter series, as Hermione repeatedly reminds her classmates who have never read Hogwarts a history, no one can apparate or disapparate on school grounds. A rule is a rule, and within Rowling's series, the steady adherence to the laws of her magical universe seduces readers into belief. Second gift, recovery is gaining a childlike, not childish in the pejorative sense, but childlike perspective, the regaining of a clear view. In other words, stepping away from our world to step into the world of Hogwarts allows us, when we return, to step back into our own world with renewed appreciation, fresh eyes. Arthur Weasley's genuine delight with eccentricity and the felitone, for example, makes us look at what we have with new interest and new appreciation. Photographs that capture still images, athletes who do not fly, letters that don't howl, seem dear and precious after a time spent at Hogwarts. So, too, does the closeness of family living, or at the very least remembered. The third gift, escape is a temporary alternative and outlet for what Tolkien calls the fugitive spirit. It allows readers to separate from the triviality of circumstances in order to encounter, experience, and consider something otherwise lost or elusive. It would be avoiding what my grandmother used to call being nickeled and dimed to death. That is, not the big things, the important things, but the little things, the nitpicking things, the things that sap us of our energy and our momentum and our joy. Certainly in the Harry Potter world, there are real world dangers, life and death dangers. But in the wizarding world, there are no cell phones, much less spam calls. Whether you apparate or use the flu network or fly by broom, you don't really have big parking problems anywhere. Hogwarts graduates aren't continually calculating and stressing over their student debt. There may be terrible, despicable leaders. But hey, at least they don't use Twitter. 
Important to note here, we must not confuse this with being divorced from real-world issues or problems. Both Tolkien and Rowling were motivated to write by their desire to find bravery and hope in a world in which the battle against evil was and is all too real. Escape isn't about hiding from the big things. It's about not letting the small things get to us so we can face the big things. And most importantly, number four, consolation. Consolation to Tolkien is twofold. Number one, quite simply, you're happy while you're reading the work. That's not something we should overlook or play down. I think that's very important. Uh, and the existence of events like the Generic Magic Festival suggests that people have been made very happy by reading works by J.K. Rowling and by J.R.R. Tolkien and others. But there's also something bigger, the, the happy ending. Tolkien says this doesn't presuppose an absence of sorrow or failure. In fact, he explains that, quote, the possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance, end quote. Darkness might, perhaps even must, precede the light. Otherwise, the reader would not value what Tolkien calls the eucatastrophe, the joyous turn that is the highest function of the genre. Hope unlooked for, joy as poignant as grief. Again, this is tied up in Tolkien's mind with his religious perspective. He sees this glimpse of big T truth as a kind of spiritual glimpse of grace. But you don't have to be Roman Catholic or Christian or religious at all to appreciate that Tolkien believed fairy tales capable of offering sophisticated, serious, even life-changing benefits to the reader. And in fact, these benefits should not be relegated to one particular age group. In fact, he notes that fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation are particularly suitable as gifts for adult readers because they are, quote, all things of which children have, as a rule, less need than older people, end quote. In other words, this is for adults especially meaningful and important. Now, I would say the Harry Potter series also offers consolation, not only happiness while you're reading the works, but each volume includes that joyous turn that denies universal final defeat. A victory made all the more potent by the suffering and danger that came before it. Also contributing to the larger meta-narrative of the series as a whole. I think if you put all seven books together and view them as one story, you also have this kind of literary one-two punch with Rowling's happy ending. First with Harry's escape from peril and frustration of Voldemort's plan. We see that in every single work. But it's also followed by a second revelation, something we don't see coming that brings us this special unlooked-for joy. I'll just give you an example in case anyone listening hasn't read the series and uh, wants to. I won't spoil the ending of the series as a whole. I'll just go with an example from the first book. 
the obvious first punch of the one-two punch there is Harry's defeat of Professor Quirrell and Lord Voldemort, initially through the skill and resourcefulness of Harry and Hermione and Ron together, and eventually due to Lily Potter's unconditional and self-sacrificing love for her son, a power that protects Harry long after his mother's death. But that's not actually the happy ending, the joyous turn unlooked for. I mean, hey, you're looking for it. You know there's six more books that say Harry Potter and, so you're kind of expecting he's not going to get killed at the end of the first book, right? I would say the joyous turn comes when Gryffindor later wrests the house cup from Slytherin at the Hogwarts parting feast, thanks to the often overlooked yet significant courage of the underdog Neville Longbottom. This is a kind of justice we didn't even dare to hope for. And I, again, I would say certainly the seven-book cycle as a whole gives us the same kind of gift. So, for the intellectual challenge of fantasy, the psychological benefits of recovery and escape, the emotional, spiritual, powerful gift of consolation that teaches empathy and hope and courage by bringing that light after darkness. That's why we need magic. Fairy stories, in fact, nourish the best of what makes us human. So, I think the question of who is the next J.K. Rowling should be, where are the best fairy stories? So where should we look now for fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation? Tolkien understood that we needed to go outside ourselves, outside our comfort zones, to allow our imaginations to be challenged and fed by works of other times, and this is key, from other places, to hear other voices. What he said when he discovered the Kalevala was this, quote, It was like discovering a complete wine cellar filled with bottles of an amazing wine of a kind and flavor never tasted before. It quite intoxicated me, end quote. And now, surely, given the state of the world, I think it's especially important to be intoxicated that way, to reaffirm our shared humanity, to allow our minds, imaginations, and hearts to be touched by fairy stories from people and cultures and places across the globe, and by being open to those stories, cultivating our empathy, finding our hope and courage together. We need new fantasy, and spoiler alert, by new fantasy, I also mean old fantasy. I mean other fantasy from elsewhere. So now I would like to share my conviction that the fantasy genre has never been more vibrant, healthy, or exciting, and we can find these gifts all around us. Harry Potter isn't the end of our journey. It can be, in fact, a first step. And we needn't think of fantasy in a restrictive way either. We can think of more broadly in terms of speculative fiction, because there are many times when the boundary between fantasy and science fiction sort of blurs. The main point is this. As readers, we have a lot to celebrate. I would like to suggest four very worthy successors to Harry Potter, and they are just the tip of the iceberg that have recently been published. All 2018, critically acclaimed, highly recommended, 
representing fairy stories steeped in the fantasy of Ireland in Europe, Nigeria in Africa, China in Asia, and the Navajo Nation in North America. All fit Tolkien's vision, fit the definition, and provide the gifts of fairy stories, and all have lessons to teach us about empathy, about hope, about courage. All of the works that I'm going to recommend, four, technically five, have teenage protagonists, although only two of the four are marketed as young adult fiction. The other two are just considered mainstream fiction. Each of these works and the series they represent deserve a talk all of their own, but in the time I have left, I hope I can encourage you to at least give some of them a try. I'm a historian, so I am contractually obligated to make all of my lists in chronological order, so that's how we will attack these. The first is for those of you who don't want to spend years waiting for books to be published to complete a series. You have everything now. That is the Greyland Duology by Pater O'Gilling, completed this year. The books in that series are The Call, published in 2016, and The Invasion, published in 2018. These books draw on Irish mythology and language, and specifically the tradition that the people who today call themselves Irish took the land from its original inhabitants, the fairy folk, the Shida, and banished the Shida to another world, a gray world. This idea of the fairy folk as the indigenous Irish population returns again and again in Irish folk tales, literature, poetry, and song. Come away, O human child, right, with the fairy hand in hand. In O'Gilling's books, near-future Ireland finds itself mysteriously cut off from the rest of the world. And then the call begins in which adolescents one by one disappear to be sucked into the Greyland and hunted. Most don't survive. Some are returned horribly twisted and changed. It's left to the very few who do survive to try and prepare those who will be called next. It becomes clear that the Shida, so long displaced and dispossessed, are now fighting back reclaiming Ireland's future, waging a slow war of ethnic cleansing, one young person at a time. Our heroine, Nessa, will one day be called. If she wants to survive the Shida, she must be able to run and fight as well as outsmart her enemy. Except Nessa has a twisted leg, a disability, and her family and society have already given up on her and her chances. This is a powerful story with an incredible conclusion, a real payoff. With real-world themes related to colonialism and imperialism, the danger of forgetting the history of your home and your people, O'Gillian focuses not only on the conflict between the Shida and the Irish, but also on the conflicts between the Irish themselves, showing how, acting through fear and prejudice, we can become our own worst enemies. How toxic, how tragic 
is the loss of hope. That's another major theme. At one point, one of the young characters says, I don't care if I don't make it. I mean it. The country is done for, and we all know that's the truth. Even the survivors have nothing to look forward to except decline. O'Gillian is asking, how do we find hope in the darkest moments? Find or create light. Again, that is The Greyland Duology by Pater O'Gilling. My next recommendation, The Legacy of Orisha series by Tomi Adeyemi, beginning with the book Children of Blood and Bone, published in 2018. The tagline for the book comes from the main character, young Zaley. They killed my mother, they took our magic, they tried to bury us, now we rise. In the fantastical world Orisha, inspired by West Africa and West African mythology, one class, the Maji, the magical people touched by specific gods and goddesses with gifts to use for the people, has been all but eradicated under the orders of a ruthless king. Zaley not only grows up without a mother, who was for lack of a better term, lynched before her eyes, but also secretly preparing to fight back. She knows she has magic, and she lives in a world that not only holds her life as worthless, but also desperately needs her magic. Nigerian-American author Tomi Adeyemi has noted that it was witnessing rising accounts of police brutality shootings of unarmed black citizens, and the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement that led her to write this series. And so any little black girl could open a book and find herself with agency, with power, with hope, represented there. Adeyemi says, quote, I want her to know that she's beautiful and she matters and she can have a crazy, magical adventure even if an ignorant part of the world tells her she can never be Hermione Granger. End quote. But you don't have to be little or black or a girl to find the power in this story. In fact, a recent feature article on Adeyemi ran in Entertainment Weekly celebrating the incredible success of this first book in the series. And its title, Is This the Next J.K. Rowling? I should note that both O'Gillian's and Adeyemi's works are marketed as young adult. The next two are not, but they feature teen protagonists whose coming-of-age stories are part of the major plot of the works. Again, that last recommendation, Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi, 2018, the first book in the new Legacy of Orisha series. Now, my next recommendation, The Poppy War series, beginning with The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang, 2018. This is set in a fantasy realm inspired by and closely resembling China, during and after the Opium Wars. If you're not familiar with the Opium Wars, it is a shameful story of imperialism, uh, how the British didn't like the trade balance with China and so fought to create a drug dependency among the Chinese, undermine China's economy and leadership, and force China into trade. 
the poppy war looks at imperialism, at genocide, at use and misuse of power, and the horrors, the real human cost of war, through the stubborn determination of a teenage girl named Wren, who, when the story begins, is about to be married off as part of a business deal, but refuses to be treated as property. She fights back against her poverty and against the notion that her fate must be decided by men, and ultimately fights with the young men and the young women with whom she trains at an elite military academy to serve her empire. Those young people include the last survivor of a terrible massacre and others who are trying to choose in what looks to be a lose-lose conflict with a stronger opponent how best to protect and preserve their people. Rin learns that the gods who were long thought dead are actually very much alive and eager to enter into what looks to be the next poppy war. And the god that has chosen her, however, is the vengeful phoenix, and that means that Rin may have the power to win an otherwise hopeless war for her people, but if she does, the cost may be her humanity, her very conscience, her very understanding of where the line must be drawn in what one does and doesn't do in war. There are real, true moral dilemmas here, wrestling with issues of moral responsibility, violence, trauma, and individual versus collective good, questioning what it takes to be a good leader, a good person, in a dangerous, deadly world that doesn't provide, often, simple or unproblematic alternatives. It's also full of amazing and sympathetic characters and fascinating glimpses into Chinese history and mythology. Amazing depictions of magic as well. That is The Poppy War, which kicks off the Poppy War series, 2018 by R.F. Kuang. And lastly... I want to recommend Trail of Lightning, the first book in the new The Sixth World series by Rebecca Roanhorse, also published in 2018. In a near-future post-apocalypse landscape, the Navajo Nation remains one of the last places standing, renewed even as much of the United States is drowned or dying. In a twist on history and reader expectations, the Navajo themselves erect walls around the reservation, not only to protect their homes and resources, but also in defiance of the feds and multinationals and private armies that roam the continent to remain their own sovereign people. Navajo protagonist Maggie Hosky, like her people, has experienced terrible things, but she is a survivor, not a victim, and certainly not anyone's stereotype. The old, traditional Navajo monsters once again roam the land, and so, infused by clan powers earned through tragedy, Maggie becomes a monster hunter. Rune Horse's use of dreams and visions, tricksters and monsters, big medicine and ancestral connection not only creates a compelling novel, but it also constitutes an act of survival, a renewal and evolution for indigenous storytelling. Maggie says, quote, 
but I had forgotten that the Dine had already suffered their apocalypse over a century before. This wasn't our end. This was our rebirth. End quote. It is a transformative story of hope, and it is just getting started. Again, that was Trail of Lightning, the first novel in the Sixth World series by Rebecca Roanhorse. While I'm here talking about an indigenous author, I'd like to mention another great book written this year, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, by Cherokee scholar Daniel Heath Justice. In Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, Justice considers indigenous futurisms part of what he calls wonder works. And he proposes that these stories matter very much indeed. Quote, they give us a future, even if it's only an imagined one. But without that imagined possibility, it's all too easy to believe we don't belong there. And that's a road to a very frightening place indeed. Indigenous writers continue to produce works that articulate and even anticipate our potential for transformative change. If only we bring to it the best of our imaginative selves. Freedom of love, of desire, of life, culture, and political survival, these are only realized through the linking of our courage to our imaginations. We can't possibly live otherwise until we first imagine otherwise. End quote. This literature of hope translates, and think about what he just said, developing our potential for transformative change, bringing the best of our imaginative selves, daring to imagine otherwise. These sound like Tolkien's gifts of fairy stories and what those gifts bring out in us as human beings. These are reasons why we need new magic. We need to do better. But first we must imagine better. Empathy, courage, hope, nurturing the best part of ourselves so we can do better. Our stories matter, the stories we tell ourselves and tell each other matter. And we need new magic. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time with me today and for allowing me a little extra time to share with you that talk. I will be back soon with something completely different for our next look into genre history. Until then, have a good one, and goodbye. And there you go, oh man, eh? Man, see, having Miss A.B.H. Sturgis as your teacher, man. Just lessons, I've mentioned, I've mentioned this as well. Lessons would just fly by. I would just sit with my elbow on the desk, just like... Just looking, look at it, looking at Miss, writing on the blackboard, dreaming. <laughs> Amy, you rock, man. You rock the best of all of them. Thank you so much. So that is the show. Actually, it's I've went and forgot, and I'm going to do it now. I forgot. Patreon. But yell. Let me just say, I'll tell you what then, this show is dedicated to Jason Crumpton. Jason, thank you, lad. Jason has been a soul climber on the Patreon 
for a long time there now, man. You know what I mean? We It was the end of the month, you know, the beginning of the month, so it was payday. We have crashed and burned again with this kind of Patreon thing. And it's just, like, stressful as out, man. But Jason has come over. So I want to dedicate this show, Jason. Thank you so much. It is an honour to have you on board. We are now sitting at... Four, two, three. Yes, last last week we were four thirty, so it makes a difference, man. Come on, if you just a couple of quid to help with, you know, do this and kind of keep paying the writers and keep kind of, you know, paying this. I'm paying me, me staff as well. My God, so please, if you can, just help out. It gets fucking nerve wracking for the guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. It really does. It would be an honour. And like I say. Jason, you're a star. This show is dedicated to you. Thank you so much. Right then, until next week, just like to say it, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Get out there by and by I'll get out there by